Well, Mark has done a fantastic job so far getting us started in 1 Samuel. If you'll remember, two weeks ago he introduced 1 Samuel and he talked about the 10 important people in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel that we will be paying attention to throughout these two books. And I thought he did a phenomenal job setting that up. And then last week he talked about First uh, Samuel chapter 3 and, and beyond as he talked about Eli and he talked about Samuel and the, the beginning of this commission that God had given Samuel as both the judge and prophet to uh, the people of Israel. Eli was a faithful priest who had unfaithful children and God used the judgment toward his unfaithful children to commission Samuel. And, and kind of give uh, an, an idea of what Eli had trained up Samuel, maybe in a different way than he trained up his sons. Because when Eli was told that Samuel was hearing from the Lord, and Samuel had received this very hard message to tell Eli about judgment that was going to come to the house of Eli, then Eli said these words, may, may God, you know, punish you ever so severely if you don't tell me everything that God has said. And of course, Samuel then shared everything that God had said about the judgment. And Eli's reaction was, well, he is the Lord. Let him do what is right for him. But this set up this pattern for Samuel to be a good prophet, a good judge who would do the things that God had said and not hold anything back. Because Eli, at this age, was a good teacher. And of course, we read through on how the Ark of God was taken by the Philistines and and lost in battle. And that the children of Eli were were killed in that battle and the Ark of God taken. And Eli passed away upon knowing that the Ark of God was taken away. Over time, the, the Philistines were being cursed, if you will, by God concerning their, their uh, collection of the Ark of God in an unrighteous manner. And so over time, as each of these places continued to get cursed where they passed the Ark of God, they said, well, let's just send it back to Israel. And so they did with an offering. After all of that had taken place, we had Samuel, who now led in his own right as a judge for the people, and, and saw them over a great victory over the people that were against them. And so he established himself as a judge. And this is where we come to chapter 8 in First Samuel. By this time, there's a large block of time that takes place. Samuel goes from being a young man and a young judge. Now he's an older man with sons of his own. And so we're going to read First Samuel chapter 8 all together. Starting in verse 1, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. 
According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to be his, his char- to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers and he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go. Every man to his city. And so from this chapter, we see the introduction of the person of Saul. Saul is out looking for his donkeys. He finds his way to Samuel, who is a seer or a prophet, because prophets were called seers in that day. And Samuel has been told of God that this is the man that is to be anointed king over Israel. And so he tells him that this is going to happen. They have a ceremony. Saul tries to kind of hide back from that. And he's pulled out in front of the people. And by being pulled out in front of the people, he's anointed. He's made king. But there's a kind of a mixed reaction to his kingship in in this initial stage. But over at Jabesh Gilead, where people were being oppressed, Saul then goes out And God uses him to free the people of their oppression. And when this happens, all the people now are now very happy to have Saul as king. So now there's a united front where there wasn't before because of his victorious battle at at this place. And so what happens after that is we see Samuel's farewell. And then we start to see the cracks in the armor of Saul, this first king of Israel. See, the king of Israel... God already knew that Israel was going to have a king sometime in the future. And if we look in Deuteronomy chapter 17, at the end of this chapter, we see the stipulations of what this king should be like. And it says in verse 14, chapter 17, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. 
One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother. Only he must not acquire for many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom and he and his children in Israel. See, Saul didn't quite fit that description. There's no recording of him writing down everything that the law had required, or definitely not meditating on it day and night. Because what happens is, as Samuel gives instruction as a judge of Israel, whom he is supposed to obey even as king, We find him disobeying and doing the things that he shouldn't do. It says that he shouldn't consider himself above his brothers. In other words, he shouldn't consider himself that I can do anything because I'm king. That my reign is somehow supreme. And so in 1 Samuel 13, we start to see the cracks in the armor of Saul. And we have a sacrifice that is supposed to be given to to initiate this battle and this favor of the Lord before this battle against the Philistines. And they're supposed to wait for Samuel, who can because he is a judge and he is a prophet and he has worked within the Levitical priesthood. He can offer the sacrifice before God. And so he tells them to wait. And after seven days, the people are getting antsy and they're about to leave. And so Saul says, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this. And he takes for himself something that wasn't part of his office. And had he been in the word of God, he would have known that. And so when Samuel shows up after he's offered the sacrifice, Saul then is told by uh, Samuel that his kingdom's going to be ripped away from him and given to another. A couple of chapters later, we see another battle that's taking place against the Amalekites. And in this one, Samuel has given orders from God that there's a destroy everything. God doesn't want any of it. And yet he takes the king captive and he takes the best of all the, all the cattle and the sheep and he says he's going to offer it to the Lord and only God knows whether or not that's truly the intention of his heart. But the truth of the matter is God didn't want any of it. And what we hear from uh, Samuel in the judgment of this time where he says it's going to be ripped away and taken to another, we hear the, the words that to obey is better than sacrifice. You wanted to give a sacrifice, but God wanted obedience. And so we see this, this rise and fall to the rejection of Saul as king of Israel. But it started because the people wanted to set before them a king of their choosing not the one that God had chosen. So we go back to um, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And we're going to go through this a little bit slow because there's a lot in this, in this chapter. And a lot of things, a lot of details in here that maybe you miss when they're asking for the institution of this king. 
So look at the first five verses. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in the ways, in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. And now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Well, there's a couple things to notice here. The first thing to notice is this, is that Samuel appointed two of his sons, his sons, as judges. This is the only time we see in all of the scripture that someone other than God appointed judges. As a matter of fact, when we go back to the book of Judges, chapter 2, and, and this is kind of the, the premise, the setup for the entire book of Judges, we see that, that as they're describing how the judges came about in the time of Israel, that, that what would happen is people would be unfaithful and God would hand them over to their enemies to be oppressed for a time. And when their oppression had become so much, they would cry out to God. They would have enough. And they're like, we're going to cry out to God. And then from that cry, when they were ready to repent, verse 16 in chapter 2 of Judges, it says, And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for, who, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of their judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever a judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so one of the things that we see in this passage of Scripture is that Samuel has kind of overstepped his bounds a little bit. Because as we see in the Scripture, God is the one who has appointed the judges. As we look throughout the book of Judges, every single time, whether there's a lot written about them or a little written about them, is that God raised up this judge. God raised up this judge. The only time we have read in the Scripture that a judge was appointed that was not of God is right here where Samuel had appointed his two sons. The judges had two roles. One was to deliver the people of Israel from bondage from those who had plundered them. But if we look in Deuteronomy in chapter 17, in the passage right before that that talks about the king, we look about the legal decisions of priests and judges. And it says in verse 8, If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. 
You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either from the right hand or the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. And so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. And so we see this office of judgeship that is conferred upon the sons of Samuel by Samuel himself. And what we see here is that the charge against his sons are much the same charge as Eli and his sons had. Eli being a faithful priest and his sons not being faithful. As a matter of fact, they perverted the, the way that God had intended the priesthood to be by sleeping with the servants who were there, the women servants who were there, by taking out the meat before it had been cooked fully and eating it with blood in it, and perverting justice and taking bribes because these were the roles of the priesthood. And Eli's sons didn't do that. And now we find that in the role of a self-appointed judgment that Samuel has done to his sons, his sons are just as bad because they didn't walk in his ways and they turned aside after gains, after gain by taking bribes and perverting justice. The very thing they're called to do according to the law. The irony is... <clears throat> That all the elders of Israel come together to say, hey, your sons are not walking in your ways and we're worried about what's going to happen in the future. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to install a king above us. And so by installing a king, you will give us stability and security that we didn't have before. And the irony about it is judges were appointed by God. They could be appointed by any tribe. Anybody could become a judge so long as they were called by God to be that judge. However, once a king is implemented, the king would have a line of succession that would pass through the sonship. So the very thing that they were trying to avoid because they saw, we look back and we see Eli and his corrupt sons and how bad that that was. And now we're looking at Samuel who was a great prophet and a good judge but his sons did not follow in that path. Now the people are binding themselves or wanting to bind themselves to a king for who the kingship would be conferred from father to son and father to son and father to son. They would be putting themselves in the very situation they're trying to avoid with Samuel and his sons. It's really rather ironic. And one of the things that we can take from this, this first section of scripture is this. And, and I want to talk with some of you specifically, those of you who have faithful parents, who are part of the church, who have, been, who have a great relationship with Jesus Christ, whether you're younger or whether you're young adults or whether you're older adults. One of the things I want to tell you is this, your parents' faithfulness does not equate to your righteousness. Your parents' faithfulness does not equate to your righteousness. Their relationship with Jesus Christ is not automatically conferred upon you because of their faithfulness. I heard so many stories of, of people who grew up in the church who said, you know, as soon as I could, I went to church all my life, and as soon as I could, I got out of leaving the church. To me, that doesn't say so much about how bad the church was. What that says is that that relationship that a father or mother had with Jesus Christ was not necessarily conferred to that son who didn't see the value 
of the meeting together and following what God wanted uh, us to do. And so, young people, those of you who are youth, those of you who are young adults, here's the thing I would tell you. God didn't have any grandchildren. We see the, the children of God being brothers and sisters of Christ, and we can, we can turn around and say, that is awesome. But what we can't see anywhere is that there's grandchildren of God because we have to come to our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't get in on the coattails of your parents' faith. And so if you think going to church is good enough, it's not. And if you think you're bored with it and you're going to leave, that might say something about your position in Christ and not necessarily that of your parents. And my encouragement to you is because God wants to see the next generation know him. But in order for them to know him, they have to have a personal relationship. That means you have to seek after God. You have to be the one who says that this faith is mine. This faith in Jesus Christ is not just my dad's anymore. It's not just my mom's anymore. It's not just my grandparents anymore, my aunts, or those significant people in your life who have brought you to a place to hear about Jesus. It's got to be yours. That means you studying the word of God. That means you praying. That means you taking ownership of your faith. That even if your parents weren't there, you would continue on because it's that important to you. Because as we can see in this passage, just because you have a famous and faithful father, a famous and faithful mother who cares enough about Jesus Christ to honor them with their lives, it doesn't mean that will be conferred upon you without you taking an active role in that relationship. We move from there to verse 6. Because what happens here is Samuel is told by God to talk to the people that they're actually rejecting him. And talk to the people of what a kingship would be. So if we start in verse 6, it says this. But the thing, them asking for a king to judge them, displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done, from the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now then, Obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from them. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before the chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And so we see some very specific language going on here because God's charge is saying, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting 
me as their king. They're not rejecting you as their judge, although they are, because they're asking for a king to judge over them, which wasn't the role of the king. The king was to rule, but not to judge. The judge and the priests were to, were to be the judge concerning the people, and even the king was to obey them. So we have this very specific language And what I mean by specific language is there's some things that are said in here because God is putting the juxtaposition between who this earthly king is going to be and who he is and who he's supposed to be for the people of Israel. Look specifically um, at verse 15 where he says, He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And we skip down to verse 17 where it says, And he will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And so if we look at that, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14, we're going to notice something. Deuteronomy chapter 14 verses 22 and 23 says this. This was the tithes and offerings that was supposed to be given to God as worship to him. And it says, In verse 22 of Deuteronomy 14, you shall tithe, which is a tenth, of all of your yield of seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain and of your wine and of your oil and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. You see, The tithe was meant to be for God. So God is using this language here when he's talking about a king. The king is going to require you that which I require myself for worship. You're going to give a tenth of your grain. You're going to give a tenth of your wine. You're going to give a tenth of your flocks. All of these things that are supposed to be turned toward God first is now going to be given toward an earthly king. That's supposed to be above and beyond their original tithe to God. Their allegiance is to be to God God first. However, I'm going to ask a question that we already know the answer to. If given the choice between giving to an earthly king whom we can see and a God whom we can't see, who do you think is going to get the shaft concerning tithes and offerings? Is it going to be the king who's going to enforce it by his people that he has hired for him? Or is it going to be God who says, I want my people to come to me freely? As a matter of fact, this this pattern is set up all the way through that after uh, the kingdom is established, is split, is sent into exile and brought back, the prophet Malachi talks about how the people of Israel have robbed God. And they say, well, how have we robbed you? Through your tithes and through your offerings. In other words, God is getting the short end of the stick Because for the ability of having some comfort and some protection from an earthly king, they have forsaken their true king. And this is why we see these words printed up here in in 1 Samuel. So in 1 Samuel, this warning goes out to the people. And the people are being told, this is what it's going to be like. It's going to be bad. All these these kings are now going to oppress you in the way that all of these raiders, these people that your judges have delivered you from, had oppressed you before. They're going to take all your best people, and they're going to 
make slaves of you. As a matter of fact, that's how this passage ends. He said, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. In other words, you're going to be in a place where you're going to cry out to God because of your oppression, much like you did all through the time of the judges. That exact same language is used. And it says, unlike the times of judges, I'm not going to deliver you. It says, in that day, you're going to cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. It's different. See, the judgeship and and the time of judges where God was king, when the people cried out, God answered because they were being oppressed by other people. Now they're choosing to be oppressed by their own king. And from here on out, the whole ability of the people of Israel to follow God is going to be greatly greatly influenced by these earthly kings under the people of Israel and later under Israel and Judah. The kingship has a tremendous power toward the people and their faithfulness to God. And God is warning them, even up to this point, this is how bad it's going to be. And as bad as it is, when you cry out to me, I'm not going to deliver you because you asked for this. Because you asked for this. You wanted this king rather than having me. And therefore, You're stuck with the generational shift of whoever's going to be king, whether they're going to be faithful or not faithful. That's what you're going to be stuck with. And I'm not going to hear you. And I'm not going to deliver you from that king. You would think that after hearing all of that, the people would be like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's really what I want. But it's surprising to me Even to this day, what we will give up for a little bit of safety and security. See, having an earthly king would make them a formidable opponent against any of the other kingdoms that were around them. They would be a unified front, no longer just dependent upon God to deliver them, but they could kind of take a little bit of control themselves, or at least some perceived control. And that little bit of safety was just enough for them to cast away God and say we would rather have the earthly king. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. So we look and we see that in this passage of scripture, they want a king so badly, a king so badly that they can see that they're willing to give up the security that comes from having a relationship, a direct relationship with God who would save them, who would raise up a righteous judge who could do the things that God wanted them to do. Now they're stuck with the king that they hope might do the things that God wanted them to do. And they don't get off to a good start with Saul. And here's the funny thing. They thought they wanted God to be king. But when God was actually king, 
they turned their back on him. As a matter of fact, that's how the book of Judges ended. The book of Judges ends with the verse that in those days, Israel had no king. That wasn't an indictment because they hadn't created a royalty, uh, a person of royalty yet, as they're doing now in 1 Samuel chapter 8. That was an indictment on the people of Israel that they had forgotten God was supposed to be their king. All throughout the Judges, you're reminded again and again and again that God raised them up. And in the, in the story of Gideon, in uh, Judges chapter 6 through 9, they want to make Gideon king. And he says, I will not rule over you. God will rule over you. And that was the rightful place of God. And yet the people of Israel had forgotten about all of that. And nothing here has really changed, has it? They said they wanted God to be their ruler and king, but they continue to forsake him every chance that they get. And ironically, here we are at the beginning of Passion Week. And Passion Week is started by Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, which is talking about him coming in as king. And all the crowds are around and they're yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it seems like they want Jesus to be their king, right? Here at the beginning of this Passion Week, we want Jesus to be our king. And yet, guess what happens? Less than a week later, they've turned on him and the crowds are yelling, crucify, crucify. It's the same story all over again. And, and the ironic thing about all of this is in the last three weeks, you and I have been tested. We have been thrown out of our routines. And throwing us out of our routines helps reveal in our hearts where the kingship of our allegiance really lies. It's just the truth. And I kind of had a... Um, a, uh, what would you call it? A, a little bit of an experience of this before this took place because I was on sabbatical. So I was thrown out of my routine. I was supposed to get some rest. And so I was home. And I could have done anything I wanted to. And pretty much I did anything I wanted to, especially the first six weeks. I slept in till 10 or 11 o'clock, which was probably good because I, I was worn out. But the one thing I didn't do, I didn't pray that much. I didn't open the word of God. I, I literally didn't open the word of God at all for about the first six weeks. And the irony is that during that time, all these other idols kind of popped up in my life. I binge watch. I did all the things I tell you guys not to do all the time. Don't binge watch a whole season of something. Well, guess what? I binge watch Star Trek The Next Generation. So I sat down and did that. And, and the irony of all of that was I got to do exactly what I wanted to do. For about six weeks. And at the end of that six weeks. I was more exhausted than when I had started my sabbatical. Even though I was sleeping and doing all that. You know why? Because I was taking myself away from the source of my peace. My strength. My sustenance. All of those things were taken away. Because I wasn't praying to God. I wasn't seeing Jesus as my life. You know Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4 says. When Jesus who is your life appears. Then you will appear with him in glory. And I wasn't treating him as my life. And all of a sudden, God got a hold of me and said, this got to change. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, you know, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, divining between the bone and the marrow and the, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. 
No man in all of creation is hidden from God. And here I was, looking for my peace in all the wrong places. Thinking that I I would be able to just chill and I would feel refreshed. And I didn't. After six weeks of that, and I'm guessing that if I did that with my free time for the last three months, some of you have done the same thing over the last three weeks. And we've kind of been thrown out of our schedule, so we do that which is comfortable. But what's comfortable is not always life-giving. You know, Jesus said, I have come to give them life and give it to the full in John chapter 10. The peace that I give is not as the world gives. John chapter 14. And so this last half of my sabbatical, I've spent my time in prayer. I've spent my time in the word. I've spent my time being refreshed in a way that I wasn't before. I mean, Jesus told, says, you know, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my load is light. And you'll find rest for your weary souls. And I can honestly say that after I came to Christ in the second half of my sabbatical time, I found that rest that I had been waiting for, for what the sabbatical was was designed to do. Praise God, I didn't waste it. But I had to learn a lesson through it. I had to realize that I had other things on that throne of kingship that only Jesus belongs at. You know, and... Just like the people of Israel who are so easy to give up their peace and security for an earthly reminder that would not be as good, we do the same thing. And Pastor Mark has done such a great job over the last couple of weeks in giving you guys some questions to ponder and think about as families and as groups of people together. And I want to kind of do the same thing. If I were to ask you right now, after three weeks of quarantine, What idols are taking the place of where God should be in your life? Have you replaced God with another king? Have you replaced Jesus on the throne of your heart with something else that's not going to satisfy? That's not going to give you strength? That's not going to give you rest? It's not going to give you peace? It's not going to give you joy? It's not going to give you purpose? But you've settled for it just the same. It's a hard question, one that you should talk about together honestly, not to be judged by each other, but but rather to really encourage one another to put Jesus on that throne. And the second question is this. What do you need to do? Maybe you weren't like me. Maybe you did a great job during these three weeks and it's been a focal point for you. And you've been able to say, hey, I'm keeping Jesus on the throne and that's awesome. But what are you going to do to keep him on that throne? And whether you're in question one or question two, you can answer, what am I going to do to put Jesus back on that throne or keep him on that throne? To make sure that he's the center of my life. To make sure that I'm not replacing him with something lesser. That's not as good. That makes me a slave to it rather than the freedom that I have in Jesus Christ. Those are the two questions I want to leave you guys with today to wrestle with as we look at this passage of Scripture. I want to encourage you guys again, uh, please remember your church family. Ask for a directory if you don't have one. Reach out to people this week. Find out how you can be a blessing and serve the purpose that God wants you to be. Thank you guys. It's been great being back for day one. We're going to close in prayer. And uh, just thank you guys. Pray that your week 
goes well, focused on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as we enter this week of Passion.